Christchurch has a shiny new hospital and it will be ready for patients in November. The largest hospital ever built in New Zealand is almost ready to open to patients. The $525 million Christchurch Hospital Hagley building boasts over 400 beds, a new emergency department and ICU. It also has the largest radiology department in the Southern Hemisphere. But underneath the excitement of new facilities, something is rotten. It's a $525 million build. It's going to deliver some additional capacity. But the really interesting thing about the project is um, it was meant to have been completed in 2018, so it's more than two years late. And what that's meant for the health board in the interim is that it's had to outsource a considerable amount of surgery to the private sector. So that has really resulted in an additional kind of deficit driver. They're outsourcing kind of tens of millions of dollars of surgery a year because they didn't have access to those theatres that were promised to them a long time ago. And it's estimated within a couple of years it won't be big enough. That's not all. There have been five shock resignations from the DHB's executive team. The management team's been at loggerheads with government appointees on the Canterbury DHB over cost-cutting efforts broken relationships. We worry that one of the reasons he's gone is that, in our view, they have a very hostile board. They also have a Crown Monitor, who, and none of whom appear to be listening to the advice from the exec leadership team and from our senior clinicians at the DHB. Leaving staff in turmoil. You've seen from the reaction from clinicians that they are incredibly concerned and are deeply upset Morale is incredibly shaky, that people are angry. And then there's dealing with COVID-19. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail, what's troubling the South Island's biggest health service? Why the walkouts from top levels of management? And why should the rest of the country care? The reason the rest of New Zealand should care is that what it reveals is a fundamental kind of tension between... um, this executive team and the direction taken by uh, the boards and in some ways the government who is wanting to see better financial performance at that health board. Um, the, the other kind of key thing is that it reveals this kind of huge leadership vacuum. Like you don't lose five people from any organisation in that top 11 without kind of having big consequences about how it's run. That's Oliver Lewis, a former Christchurch press reporter. He's been covering the staff exodus at the Canterbury District Health Board and those who've left also governed the West Coast DHB. It's the second largest in the country, uh, so there's about 580,000 people. And so you've got an 11-strong executive management team, the senior executives who run that board. In the last month, we've seen five of those people resign including the CEO, David Mates, who's been there for 11 years, almost treated a bit like a saint, really, by some of his staff. Like, I spoke to a doctor um, the day he resigned, and that person said that 10 years of the organisation had literally never heard a bad word about him. Uh, he's seen as someone who kind of cares for his staff and really drives performance at the DHB. The first to go was the Chief People Officer, Michael Frampton, in July. But August was when the exodus really started. The DHB's Planning, Funding and Decision Support Executive Director, Carolyn Gullery, announced her resignation on the 3rd of August. A day later, at an emergency board meeting to discuss staffing numbers, Chief Executive David Mates resigned. The next day, the DHB's Chief Financial Officer, Justine White, also threw in the towel. And then, just over the weekend... 
Amid turmoil at the board, its chief medical officer, Sue Nightingale, announced her resignation on Friday. That's the fifth resignation from the 11-member executive team since last month. The executive director of the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists, Sarah Dalton, says Ms Nightingale's departure is of particular concern. The chief medical officer is an extremely important you know, member of the executive team from our point of view. So that further loss of continuity, that loss of experience and leadership, particularly with the COVID outbreak as it is once more, is really troubling to us. You're saying like a huge departure of expertise. The chief financial officer, for instance, was the... Um and still remains the head of all 20 DHB's Chief Financial Officers Group. So these are really uh, well-versed and um, kind of influential people. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, like, the staff morale. Like, as I mentioned, 580,000 people receive care from the CHB. Having this sudden departure has really rocked staff. They feel kind of upset, shaken, particularly by the abrupt nature of it. Yeah, and I guess you touched a bit on this already in, in terms of, you know, that tension between the executive management team and the board. Why mm. did that relationship break down so badly that the executive director felt like he needed to go? Yeah, uh, so quite an interesting uh, observation on that. So we went to David Mates and asked him, does having Carolyn Gallery leave and also Michael Frampton in the space of a month, does that say anything? What is the reason for that happening? At the time, he was kind of brushed it off and said that it's just a coincidence and to be fair those two people are both going to new roles he then obviously resigned the next day following this emergency board meeting and the CFO the next day so I, I don't really know if you can look at that and say that is a coincidence and as the senior doctors union has pointed out it looks a bit more like an implosion and there has been from very well placed sources that I've spoken to serious concerns about the relationship between the boards and the exec management team the reason it's played out as it has, at least in part, is because clinical leaders at the DHB have repeatedly raised issues to the board regarding what cost-cutting measures might look like, like the state of the, the facilities that they're operating in. And I've been told that they just feel that they haven't really been heeded and that the board has been kind of myopically focused on managing the, de- the deficit. That's been the key focus. The head of the senior doctors union kind of said, like, how long can you hit your head against a brick wall before you do yourself damage. And um, that was the impression a lot of people I've spoken to had regarding, in particular, David Mates' resignation, that he and others had repeatedly raised concerns and kind of got to a point where they didn't feel they were being listened to by the board. And, of course, the board's refuted that, so it's difficult to actually understand the intricacies from the outside. But looking in, you can certainly kind of discern that there is some tension or disagreement. Health Ministry figures show that in late March, the 20 district health boards were forecasting a year-end deficit of $390 million. Canterbury DHB has the biggest forecast deficit. That's nearly $180 million in debt in the last financial year. And you might be wondering why that's still a problem, given the government recently poured billions of dollars into DHBs. The health system's been given a $4 billion cash injection to boost DHBs and clear the COVID-19 backlog. Health Minister David Clark says the 9% funding increase is the biggest in two decades. DHBs will receive $980 million per year over the next four years. But here's the crux of the issue. The majority of the Canterbury deficit isn't related to operational costs. The bulk of the debt that Canterbury carry is 
entirely related to the earthquake rebuilds, they're actually running a current operating surplus. It's been a devastating decade for Canterbury. Most recently, along with the rest of the country, they've had to deal with COVID-19. But just last year, there were the mosque terror attacks. Horror in Christchurch this afternoon after shootings at two mosques in the city. Those the Port Hills fires two years before that. A state of civil emergency has been declared in Christchurch as fire crews try desperately to gain the upper hand on two raging fronts. The one-in-a-hundred-year flood in 2014. To Christchurch now, 1,500 people are without power tonight and more than 100 homes have been evacuated by what's been called once-in-a-century flooding in the city. And then, of course, the earthquakes. We're having reports of facades coming off buildings and spires off churches. Unfortunately, we have heard that there are fatalities, people are buried in the rubble, the quake hurt at the worst possible time. And Oliver Lewis says it's the quakes that this entire saga leads back to. 44 DHB buildings had to be demolished because of the earthquakes. But there's still a lot of earthquake damage that has yet to be repaired, including some at the, the main Christchurch Hospital campus. So I've seen photographs of kind of cracks in the walls, kind of quite superficial damage in some parts. But Yeah, and after so nine years, you would hope it would be fixed. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the point. And like, so the, the other thing, which is a deficit driver, actually, is the, um, the global insurance settlement for the, for the earthquakes. That was a, a capped figure. It was kind of capped, I think it was about $290 million, if I'm correct. And so the, the, the actual damage uh, and repairs uh, are estimated at much more than that. So that's an ongoing kind of expense that the CDHB is having to meet. And it, it still hasn't been fixed, right? Like, you've got buildings at the hospital campus that, yeah, have this kind of damage, have these kind of cracks. And that can't be repaired or fixed until services are actually able to, to, to leave or to migrate out of those areas. And at the moment, there just isn't the space. So there was a, a really telling comment last year when the clinicians at the hospital met with um, then Health Minister David Clark. And they said to him, like, the, the, the dire state of facilities at Christchurch Hospital is kind of drastically and negatively impacting on, on patient care. And it's not just the earthquake damage. Some of it's to do with age, right? Um, the Parkside building, for instance, at Christchurch Hospital, has got the, the worst operating theatres in the country that were assessed as part of this most recent national hospital stock take. Got really bad wards. I think the, the DHB claims it's the only major DHB in the country still uh, to house like six patients in a room. So you've, you've got this kind of ongoing kind of flow-on impacts from the quakes and like that's embarked on this massive kind of repair and uh, rebuild process over about a decade. So you've got all these new facilities kind of coming online, which have cost kind of hundreds of millions of dollars once they're all completed. Yeah. When you get new buildings, you attract uh, higher rates of depreciation and capital charges. Here's what that means. So depreciation is the loss of value in an asset, a car or building over time. A capital charge is money district health boards have to pay back the government for any capital investment, such as a new hospital. They're required to front up 6% of each new build and money for that normally comes out of the DHB's budget. After a damning report from the Auditor-General last year revealing serious financial woes for almost all DHBs, the government pledged to pay for capital charges of new builds. But that is only set down for two years, starting in January of 2019, and left out any previous work. So that's a significant, if not the main driver, 
of the deficit that the board has. It's not the operational day-to-day running of the hospital. It's these kind of structural issues, which they have argued are, are born about because of the extraordinary impacts of the earthquake. Mm. Um, the position of like the of the Crown Monitor and the government is that Canterbury has had this big increase in funding, particularly this year, as all health boards have had, and that there's it's associated with that like a an appreciation that they have to have better financial performance. So it, it's quite interesting. There's, there's real disagreement between the ministry and the CVHB about. Uh, the equity of the funding post-quakes and if the health board got enough (laughs) to the point where the relationship really kind of totally broke down um, a few years ago. Where do we go from here? I mean, is there there any way out of this? Because you've got all these breakdown of relationships between the executive management and the board and then the CDHB and the Minister of Health. It seems like a very dire situation. It does. From... Our understanding in our reporting, David Mates has not confirmed why he left his role and mm. neither has the, the board chair, Sir John Hanson. But talking to quite well-placed sources in the health board, there was a real suggestion that the reason he resigned was due to this increased emphasis on cost-saving measures. So before the end of July, they submitted their 2021 um, draft annual plan and that contained like a savings package of $56 million in savings, we understand. We haven't seen it. And so from what I've heard, that was palatable to the senior execs. They they and the clinicians both understand the need to get back to a break-even position to reduce the deficit. Yeah. It's just the speed uh, and the pace at which the ministry and the Crown Monitor, Lester Levy, allegedly want to do that, which is the issue. So apparently that $56 million savings wasn't seen as enough. Um, and they... Lester Levy and the ministry had wanted a lot more. Apparently, this is the understanding, was that David Mates had really not wanted to go beyond that and kind of realised that if he had to make those kind of savings, he would, in effect, be having to reduce or cut, to, to some degree, frontline services, and he wasn't comfortable doing that. Quite a funny anecdote, actually, was uh, 2018, I think it was, I went to the new Christchurch Hospital Hagley building um, for a tour of the construction site. And this is just an illustration of the how bad the relationship was at the time and prior. So, like, a construction manager mentioned um, to me when we were discussing kind of, like, the issues of the build and the disagreements between the Ministry of Health and the CDHB that it would just be easier to kind of put them in a cage and let them fight it out because that was the tenor of the relationship. Wow. Really, really aggravated. Prior to, to, to the to Labor getting into to government in 2017, um, they had made this promise that they would seek to repair the relationship between the Canterbury District Health Board and the central agencies, so that's the Ministry of Health, Treasury, et cetera, uh, ensure that services were funded properly. In 2018, they started this kind of truth and reconciliation process, which was how it was colloquially known, uh, where they got an independent facilitator and to look at the, the disagreements and the roots of the relationship breakdown and to try to find some commonality between the different views of the CDHB and the ministry. Mm. And so his report's quite interesting. He said the relationship was so rocky uh, that at one point these kind of senior government staffers were lobbying for kind of governments and management changes at the CDHB. Uh, so he said that he, in his experience it would be difficult to find any other example where um, you had these well-intentioned, competent people on both sides who saw the same set of issues so differently. Mm. So it's quite remarkable the degree of breakdown in that relationship. There had been hope that that process would have repaired things, 
But I think with this recent spate of resignations, you can't look at that and think the relationship, at least between the management and the clinicians there and the government and the ministry, is particularly healthy. In fact, it got so bad that the senior doctors at the Canterbury District Health Board wrote to the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in July. They undermined usual official channels, saying they felt their concerns about financial issues and inadequate earthquake-damaged facilities had been ignored. They kind of point out that no other government agency in the country would really be comfortable operating or running its services in these kind of earthquake-damaged buildings. It's extraordinary to, 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 for them to be telling a Prime Minister that they believe that there's a potential for a catastrophic breakdown of the health response in Canterbury. It's not the language that you kind of expect from doctors. You're very measured, very kind of rational. Yeah, exactly. Really quite desperate. What has the government response been? I think what the government line is, and it's, it's accurate, is that they have increased operational fundings for, for DHBs across the country, and that includes Canterbury. So Canterbury for the last three years has seen funding increases and relatively large ones. So the government can kind of point to the funding increases and say, look, we have given you a lot more money and we expect you to be more financially prudent and manage your deficit in light of that. Um, In terms of outright statements addressing the most recent spate of resignations and the so-called implosion, uh, the government has been largely very quiet. The Commissions wrote to the Prime Minister, as I said, in July. Uh, she refer- Her office referred the letter to, to Health Minister Chris Hipkins. He responded to the clinicians in early August and said that whilst he kind of noted their concerns, he was referring it back to the board, as he thought that was the best place for their concerns to be heard, and again pointed to the um, funding increases and uh, capital investment and projects post-quack as evidence that the government was supportive of the health system. When we've gone to him for comment about the resignations and he has concern about the lack of leadership at the DHB in light of those people leaving, he's kind of said that that's a matter for the board and he has faith in them to to respond effectively. So <laughs> It's been very hands-off, obviously. The, yeah, it really has been. Like it's, um, I mean, I, I guess that's understandable. As a politician, perhaps you don't want to be dragged into this... Um, very messy, very kind of protracted fight over funding and issues at you know your second largest DHB. Have you been able to talk to any of those people who resigned? Not directly. I've been talking to people uh, who know what they're thinking and who have a good idea of their motivations. And I think it's important to be clear. Like it's these are five people. They've obviously got separate motivations to a degree. And from my understanding, at least one of them, the chief people officer, uh, has taken a new role and it's not necessarily linked to this kind of tension with the board. And you've also seen board members kind of come out refuting um, the fact that there is any tension. (laughs) I think that's difficult to to believe given what I'm hearing uh, from, from staff. Last Friday, Board Chair Sir John Hanson announced Dr Andrew Brandt, currently at the Waitamata DHB, as the interim CEO. Just hours later, Chief Medical Officer Sue Nightingale dropped her bombshell resignation. Health is a very specialised field um, mm. and health executives, so like, to find people of a similar calibre really quickly I think will be very difficult. What does this mean for the future of Canterbury? And I mean, you know, especially in light of COVID-19, uh, where 
once again, you know, we're, we're facing another chapter of, of this COVID story. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, yeah, it really depends on the people that are found to replace these executives. And it also depends on if we see any kind of concession, I think, from the government in terms of Canterbury's financial position. So if you have to continue seeing these uh, these cuts or these savings made year on year till to, to you reach this break-even position, and you see that having to happen really rapidly, I can't see how that wouldn't affect health service delivery to some extent. And as you've rightly pointed out, this is happening in the spectre of COVID-19. And there's been a lot of commentary that this is a terrible time for any kind of health board or health system to be looking at how it's reducing costs. Especially if that means staffing numbers, because like you've got a global pandemic, the worst we've seen in 100 years, and just had some community transmission back in the country. You need your health system to be performing at an optimal level. You can't have mm. it where you've got staff shaken morale really low uh, and with the spectre of kind of further savings being forced on our health system. So it's quite worrying, to be honest. Like, And I know staff are concerned about what's going to happen. And I think the thing that really plays into this is you don't really get a lot of communication from either the government or the board. So a lot of their kind of decisions are made in public excluded, which is their right to do that. But and there's also the sensitivity around kind of a, you're doing an annual plan process and you're making decisions that haven't been made yet, right? Um, but there's no certainty and there's not really very clear messaging coming from that board in regards to what they intend to do beyond this kind of fairly hollow promise that they won't do service cuts. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a nice rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to former press reporter Oliver Lewis. Mā te wā. 